Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dana Buckler Show. My name is Dana, and I am joined by my regular co-host for the 20th Century Movie Club, Michael Scott. How are you today, sir? I'm doing well, sir. Thank you. Excellent. Happy to have you back. And we are going to be joined for the first time by, I think, arguably one of the biggest fans of our show and someone who has been so absolutely supportive of the work that we do that it just made perfect sense to ask her to come on and be a part of the show. So, ladies and gentlemen, I want to introduce you to Carmelita Valdez McCoy. Carmelita, how are you today? Hi. I am really stoked to be here. Incredibly so. I'm honored to be able to throw some picks into the 20th Century Movie Club list. We are really excited to have you on here. Tell the listeners just a little bit about yourself. Sure. I am a pop culture junkie. I am stuck in the 20th century. (laughs) Um, Listen to a lot of podcasts, watch a lot of movies um, and television, read a lot. And I I just love what you guys do. So I'm I'm stoked to be here. We're thrilled to have you on here. Uh, what, What are some of the podcasts that you like to listen to? Oh, goodness. Well, obviously, the Dana Buckler Show, of course. (laughs) Sure. Uh, Shat the Movies and Shat on TV are awesome. Hi, guys. Also really enjoy the LSG Media Podcast Network. They do a great X-Files podcast, and they're going episode by episode, which is really fun if it's your first time or if you're revisiting. It's one of my favorite shows. And they also have a science fiction-filled podcast, which is fun. And recently, I started listening to Film Alchemist, and I think listeners of the Dana Buckler show would enjoy that one too. Excellent. Well, perfect. Well, again, I I can't say it enough. We're super excited to have you on here. Now, what we do on the 20th Century Movie Club, ladies and gentlemen, is we recommend movies that were released before the year 2000. And what we've really been doing with the last five or six episodes is we've been doing sort of different themes. We did the the 70s, the 60s, the 50s. Uh, the episode that was most recently uh, released was on movies that were based on a true story. And what I like to do is when we have a special guest on, I want that guest to pick the theme. And so, Carmelita, can you tell the listeners the theme that you chose for this episode? So the theme for this episode is going to be dark psychological films. Okay. I love it. I love it. Excellent. So and you guys have a lot of action movies and a lot of comedies. I thought we'd take a walk on the dark side today. I, I love it. I love it. So what we're going to do is uh, every time we have a guest on, they make the first pick. So Carmelita, what is your first pick? for volume 18 of the 20th Century Movie Club. So the theme actually came out of my deep desire to turn more people onto my first pick. So I had to make it the first one. This is 1990's Jacob's Ladder. It's directed by Adrian Lyne, written by Bruce Joel Rubin. Um, Adrian Lyne had directed Flashdance, Nine and a Half Weeks, Fatal Attraction. Uh, Bruce Joel Rubin wrote Ghost, which came out the same year. Definitely more successful. Jacob's Ladder barely came, broke even in the box office. But this movie has a cult following, of which I am a card-carrying member. It had its real success in the video, home video market, and running on cable TV. Stars Tim Robbins, plays Jacob Singer, and he's this man who's haunted by the mystery of what happened to his platoon while stationed in Vietnam. And he begins experiencing hallucinations, paranoia. He's co-starred with uh, Elizabeth Pena, Danny Aiello is in this, Ving Rhames, and a very young Macaulay Culkin. The cool thing about this movie is it's it's billed as a psychological thriller, which it is, but there's some serious horror in this movie. It's really disturbing at times. It's unsettling, it's creepy, and there's a lot of existential horror. All throughout the film, Jacob Singer 
is trying to figure out what's real who can he trust he's having auditory hallucinations he's seeing things and he's just very disoriented and confused there's only a couple of scenes that take place in the film where the viewer is aware of something that jacob singer isn't so Throughout the film, you're right along with Tim Robbins and his confusion and his despair over the nature of his reality. This script was written in the early 80s. I think in 83, it made the American Film Magazine list one of the top 10 best unproduced screenplays in Hollywood because no one knew what to do with it. It got shopped around to a lot of people. A lot of directors took an interest, one of them being Ridley Scott. But they weren't sure that they could translate the metaphysical aspects of the script to the screen. But Adrian Lyne took the challenge. Lots of great effects in this movie. They were all done in camera, nothing in post-production. Adrian Lyne wanted it that way. And so it has a real feeling. It's a movie, it's kind of not of one time. It's a film that came out in 1990, was written in the early 80s, set in the early 70s. I love this movie. Tell me you've seen it. Okay, so I'll go first on this one. I have seen this movie one time, and that would have been shortly after it was released on a home video. So what you said, 1990, I would have been 12, possibly 13 years old, and this movie wrecked me. I could not, at that young of an age, mentally uh, process what was happening on screen. So much so, and this is not a knock against the movie that I just never had a desire to want to see it again. But it's always sort of been lingering in the back of my mind, hey, someday soon you need to sit down and watch this movie through a set of adult eyes. So I'm glad that you recommended this one because I think it's time that I give it a revisit. But I remember you said it very clearly, like there's some disturbing things in this movie. And for a 13-year-old to watch it, it was extremely disturbing. So I think that's a great recommendation. Mike, what are your thoughts on Jacob's Ladder? Uh, it's a great recommendation. Uh, it's been a while since I've seen it, uh, but I remember it very well. I think it's it's a very solid movie. What I think is also most interesting about it is, but it's kind of really hard to talk about the movie without talking about spoilers because it is. It, its influences and its legacy kind of all tie together because, you know, there's one very obvious influence. I'm not even going to say the name of the story, but there's an Ambrose Bierce story that is very clearly the inspiration for this. If I tell you the name, people the name, they'll probably figure out kind of where the movie's going to go. But what I think is really important about Jacob's Ladder is it's a movie that really didn't, like you said, Carmelita, it, it did not do well at the box office, yet it has had such a legacy that there are things, movies and things that people love today that they probably don't even realize how big of an influence uh, Jacob's Ladder was. For instance, for anybody that's a gamer in the audience, basically Silent Hill exists because of Jacob's Ladder. The Silent Hill video game franchise is just supremely heavily influenced by this. There's been bad kind of in-name-only remakes. I don't know if anybody remembers a movie called Soul Survivors uh, with Casey Affleck and Elijah Dushku that's just absolutely terrible but it's essentially just a remake of this this movie is you know one of the ones that i think is a pivotal foundational impactful movie from the late 20th century i think this is one of those movies that if you consider yourself a movie fan i'll admit it's it's not actually one of my favorites um which is why i haven't revisited it a ton and that's just a it's just a personal thing but if you haven't seen jacob's ladder you're not 
getting, especially if you consider yourself sort of a horror or psychological thriller fan, you're really not getting one of the foundational movies of the last 50 years. Um, so I think this is a great recommendation. If people haven't seen it, I think they really do need to seek it out. You know, I have a question for both of you, and I'll turn it over to you first, Carmelita. I mean, Tim Robbins sure. is in this film. You know, what, what are we thinking about his career tra- trajectory around 1990? I mean, this was a this was a very interesting film, you know, and he obviously did Shawshank and The Player, and he's done a lot of really interesting smaller films. I don't really guess I wouldn't classify Shawshank as a smaller film. It's one of the most beloved films of all time. But are either of you surprised that he's not a bigger movie star? Carmelita, I'll go to you first on that. I am. I adore Tim Robbins. And he's he's done a lot of really interesting films. He's great in comedy. Uh, he really makes this film work. He's so charming Great comedic timing, but he can also really bring home the dramatic moments. I wish we saw more of him. I think he's currently doing a television show on Showtime or HBO or something. So hes it's not that he's not working. He just doesn't get the same recognition that other actors of his generation do, which is a shame because he's great. Yeah. Uh, Mike, what are your thoughts? I don't. Yeah, I kind of don't know that I actually agree with that premise. I, I mean, this dude had a 20 year run of both major box office hits and and certainly critical and award uh, recommend, you know, accolades and, and acknowledgement. I mean, if you look at the movies he made right around this time, you've got the player, like you mentioned, you've got shortcuts, uh, you've got Dead Man Walking uh, that he wrote and directed. Uh, then he's a, he's Incredible Rock, Arlington Road, brilliant okay. cameo in High Fidelity. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, not to mention Mystic River. Um, yeah. So I, I think he had a pretty solid career. And even right now, like Carmelita mentioned, he's in a TV show. But that he's also going to appear in Castle Rock, which is one of the biggest streaming shows going right now, the, the Stephen King show. So um, I think he's had a pretty good career. I think the reason maybe he's not bigger now is I almost think that's perhaps intentional on his part. You know, he got really involved in political activism and stuff like that. And so I, I almost wonder if he didn't just sort of voluntarily back away from yeah. stuff a little bit. Okay. All right. Excellent. Yeah. That, and that's what I'm saying. Like, like I remember Mystic River, that was like 2003. And mm-hmm. he's, he's had a, you know, it hasn't been, I, I guess, I guess I, I say this in the sense that I want more of him. I want to see more of him. Like I, it's, it's not a knock against him. I just wish that he was more prevalent, you know, the, the way, the way someone like a Gary Oldman is the amazing actor who, you know, when they're in a movie, you're like, I have to go see this. And I just, but you're right, Mike, I think everything you said and Carmelita, I think you're right. Like, you know, this could have been a conscious decision on his part. So it's interesting. So Mike, what's your first pick? Uh, knowing what Carmelita's first pick was going to be, cause that was kind of the one she gave us as an example. I, my first pick is a movie that came out at a, a couple years before Jacob's Ladder. I think it has a very similar vibe, a very similar feel. It was incredibly controversial upon release. It actually made less than its box or than its budget at the box office, much like Jacob's Ladder. It was not a box office success, but has gone on to kind of have this cultural impact. And it's Alan Parker's 1987 film, Angel Heart. For those who haven't seen it, Angel Heart stars Mickey Rourke as a kind of down and out private detective in 1955 New York named Harry Angel, who's hired by Robert De Niro's Louis Cipher to track down this old crooner named Johnny Favorite. And I'm not going to say 
anything else because the less you know about angel heart the more effective it is uh because what it basically is is essentially harry angel almost heart of darkness style descending into hell to try and find johnny favorite and uh i just actually i'd seen this movie several times but i just rewatched it this weekend and man this movie still knocks me on my ass um this movie is one of i think the best sort of creepy, unnerving psychological movies that came out in the 80s, primarily because Mickey Rourke. Uh, For those who only know what Mickey Rourke has become, let me take you in the Wayback Machine to the 80s when he was about the biggest up-and-coming, interesting, dynamic actor uh, that everybody thought was essentially the next Brando. Uh, Obviously, he's had lots of personal issues. He's done some really pretty terrible things in his life. But this happened kind of before everything went off the rails. And I would argue that other than The Wrestler, this is probably the last truly great Mickey Rourke performance. But it is hands down worth watching just for him, if for no other reason. The fact that it's, I think it's a great movie above and beyond that is just kind of a a bonus. Uh, So have you either of you seen Angel Heart? I'll go first on this. Um, no. In fact, this one, this is an interesting one. You've got me completely stumped. I've never even heard of it. And that's interesting. Most of the movies that you recommend, I've certainly heard of, but I was like, ah, I haven't seen it. I haven't even heard of this film. So I, I really, gonna, I'm going to have to defer to Carmelita and back to you, but I'm really, this one's really interesting because I like I like 80s Mickey Rourke. I think a really underrated film that doesn't get enough attention is Harley Davidson and the Marble Man. Like, I really enjoy that movie. And I think he's great in that. And, of course, The Wrestler is, you know, a tour de force. But you, you're right. Like, he's he was the man in the 80s. So, Carmelita, have you seen the movie? I have. It's been quite a few years. But this is a movie that leaves an impression. And yeah, I, I agree with everything that you've said about Mickey Rourke. I mean, he was he's a tremendous actor. And... And in the 80s, he was really poised to be like a Brando. I had a big crush on him in the 80s. And I remember this movie fondly, but it's been a while. I'm long overdue for a rewatch. And, and I think I think definitely, Carmelita, you should rewatch it. And you, you nailed it. This is a movie that leaves an impression, right? This is a movie that leaves an impact. I'm actually really surprised, Dana, that you haven't heard of it. It, it, it actually cost, so it also co-stars Lisa Bonet, uh, formerly of The Cosby Show. Um, and this is actually actually what cost her her role on the Cosby show. I remember this uh, now. I'm I'm sorry to cut you off. I remember the controversy. I remember it now. I'm sorry. Not to cut. Please continue. But you just invoked the memory. Uh, For those who don't know, there is, and again, this isn't a spoiler. There is a relatively, not even relatively, insanely intense and and weird uh, and uncomfortable sex scene between Mickey Rourke and Lisa Bonet in the movie. And uh, apparently, yeah, Bill Cosby was very upset, thought it was going to ruin the image. Ironic now uh, (laughs) that uh, Bill Cosby was worried about the image and his image. But nonetheless, uh, it is it was it was one of those movies that the controversy almost uh, overwhelmed the rest of the movie. And so a lot of people, I think, when they first saw it, didn't quite know what they were getting, because what this really is, is just a, a hard boiled modern film noir uh, with, you know, sort of combined with Heart of Darkness. Um, and it's just the the mood and the atmosphere. You know, most of it takes place in New Orleans and the way Parker shoots it. You know, we talked a couple episodes ago about Cool Hand Luke, how you could smell when they were out on the chain gang. You could smell the dirt and the sweat. This is the same thing. You can smell the rain. You can smell the humidity. Uh, it's just, it's a beautiful movie. It's stunningly shot. Um, 
And again, yeah, Rourke just carries the whole thing. And, and just to, to reiterate, you know, for those who only know modern Mickey Rourke, just Google Mickey Rourke then and now and see what he looked like in the 80s. And you will see why he was uh, kind of this big up and coming guy. I mean, he and why he's perfect for this movie, because he was in, in a very good looking man, but also had this I mean, the Brando was an apt description, this edge to him, this kind of sense of, of menace to him. Uh, and he's I don't know that he's ever more perfectly used than he is in this movie. I'm also a uh, stay tuned for episodes down the road is another one that I'll talk about the Pope of Greenwich Village. I think those are his two kind of best performances where he's used perfectly. Um, so, Dana, I really strongly recommend you check this one. Yeah. And it's it, like. As soon as you mentioned the controversy with Lisa Bonet, like this is what was this eighty six? Eighty seven. Eighty seven. So I I was a entertainment tonight junkie. I would watch it every night. And this was like ongoing. I remember like I remember and this correct me if I'm wrong, but this kind of derailed her career, correct? Uh yeah, I I, I, I think it did. You know, it's the controversy, and, and not so much the film. Yeah, and anything involving the, these kinds of situations, I'm sure there's always more explanations or more going on, but there is no question that she was on the rise before this movie, and she was not on the rise after this movie. So, you know, read into that what you will, but it definitely, I think, negatively affected her career. That's interesting. All right, Carmelita, what do you got for your second pick? Okay, so this is maybe an unconventional choice for a psychological movie, but I will argue that it fits. This is 1995's Leaving Las Vegas, directed by Mike Figgis, screenplay by Mike Figgis. This is like the Mike Figgis show on this movie. He <laughs> also did the soundtrack. Uh, it's based on a book by John O'Brien, a semi-autobiographical book. Um, John O'Brien had a hard life and he had a pretty tragic death only two weeks after he signed the contract for the rights to the movie. Uh, but it stars Nicolas Cage, Elizabeth Shue, and Julian Sand. And there's some great appearances. Uh, Mariska Hargitay is in this briefly. Uh, R. Lee Ermey has a little cameo. Richard Lewis. Uh, this was shot on 16mm film. Very small budget of $4 million. And it's, it's, a, it's a dark film. It's a heavy film. This pick is as much a challenge as it is a recommendation because it's not easy to watch. It's not the most cheerful movie, but I have a few reasons for picking it. One of which is in our current internet culture, Nicolas Cage has become a meme. Let me, let's just be honest. And this film, his performance in this film won him the Academy Award and it was so deserved a movie like this doesn't work unless the actor portraying the lead character is able to really immerse themselves and give themselves over to the role he plays ben sanderson a hollywood writer who's a chronic alcoholic after burning all his bridges in la he decides to move to las vegas with the explicit goal of drinking himself to death and after he lands in vegas he meets elizabeth shoe's character sarah she's a sex worker uh, who's picking up Johns on the strip. They form a really quick bond and pursue an intense but unconventional romance. They're these desperate people who are lonely, who are looking to be accepted, who are on this trajectory of self-destruction. But it's really beautifully done. Uh, Nicolas Cage, his character is in at some level of inebriation or 
withdrawal. He has really violent DTs throughout the entire film. Elizabeth Shue gives a really great performance, too. She was also nominated for an Academy Award, didn't win, um, but the nomination was absolutely deserved because she's this toughest nails but very empathetic character i think the psychological part of this film is that there's a shift in perspective at various points in the film sometimes you're seeing the world through ben sanderson's eyes drunk sloppy desperate other times it's like you're in elizabeth shoe sarah's perspective and you see what she sees when she looks at Ben. And then other times you get a look at the two of them moving through the world, these lost people. There's one shot in particular where the camera is perched up high, almost like a security tape. So it's a really interesting film, hard to watch. I will warn viewers that there is one particular scene of brutal rape, difficult to watch. I've seen this movie a million times and it's still hard for me to watch it, but I would challenge 20th century movie club enthusiasts to give it a shot what say you gentlemen i saw this in the theater when it came out there was a huge buzz about this film and i was 17 and i was really starting to get into because remember this is the this is the mid 1990s we are well into the indie film boom if you will and like you mentioned mm-hmm. four million dollar budget and i had you know with, with movies like pulp fiction and and other like independent films that were getting real like notoriety this was one that was on the map and i second everything you said i this movie may be responsible for me always being a little cautious about how much i drink and how often i drink you know uh, like anyone else in my like most people in their 20s i it was kind of a blur but now at 41 like i, I don't even really drink that much because this movie really served as a kind of a deterrent as to not you know, hit the sauce as hard as you should or hard do not hit the sauce very hard. That being said, having said all that, I've only seen it one time because it is a movie for me, at least it's a movie that it is, it's powerful. It's disturbing. It's uncomfortable. And these are all things I say, positive things about this film. Um, it's never been something I've wanted to put myself through again. And that is a testament to just how powerful the film is that I don't want to sit through it again. Michael, oh boy. Okay. Uh, I'm here. Yeah, no, there's just a, there's, there's a lot to talk about with this movie. Um, it's, uh, first of all, Carmelita, it's a phenomenal recommendation. It's absolutely wonderful. And it's the type of movie we should be talking about on this show. A couple of things I want to address. One, I'm with you, Dana. I saw it in the theater. I, there's a couple of movies that I've mentioned on this show in the past. One of which being Requiem for a Dream, that I've seen them once and I never need to see them again because they so permanently scarred themselves into my brain that I feel like I could close my eyes and just replay the entire movie. This is another one. I watched it once. My life was better for having watched it, but it's not one that I ever necessarily need to revisit um, because I remember it. I remember everything about it. Uh, So, yeah, audience, if you haven't seen this one, this one is a tough watch. Carmelita's not not wrong about that, but I think it is a movie that you need to watch uh, because it is. Mike Fig has had a great has had a great career, but this is by far and away his masterpiece. I don't think he's he's ever made a movie that comes close to this one. And there is an, an extra layer for those who don't know of poignance to the movie. So the guy that wrote the book, John O'Brien, he was actually a writer on Rugrats and a fairly serious alcoholic. The the movie is semi-autobiographical and and for those who don't know, not to bum people 
out even more. But uh, he actually committed suicide after learning they were turning the book into a movie. Um, and uh, I'm quoting from Wikipedia here, so take that with a grain of salt. But his father actually said that the novel was his suicide note. And, and that makes sense if you've read the book or seen the movie. So there's an extra layer of poignance here. The thing that makes Leaving Las Vegas, I think, so powerful is it is such a raw movie. Every emotion, every feeling, everything that happens is just pure, raw. There's no filter. There's no glitz. There's no... There's nothing that separates you from what's happening on screen. I know I'm not being very clear about that, but I hope people kind of get what I'm what I'm saying with this. This movie will affect you. You will be different after watching this movie than you were before you watched it. And honestly, that's kind of the best compliment I can give any movie. Uh, the other thing I wanted to kind of address really quick, I know I'm droning on here, is Carmelita, you mentioned that Nicolas Cage is a meme. This gives me a perfect chance to talk about my boy, Nick Cage, because I know he's funny. I know we like him. I know he's quirky. People, the dude can act. The dude is one of the best actors that we have ever seen. And if you think he doesn't have that in him still, I urge you to watch Mandy, which just came out last year, because he is a once in a generation kind of actor. And this movie shows it. But newer stuff like Mandy also shows he hasn't lost it. It's just most of the time, unfortunately, due to personal issues, he's got to make a lot of movies and most of them are crap. But when he's got a movie that he's invested in, he is still as good as anybody out there. And Carmelita, I love this recommendation. I'm going to stop droning on about it, but this is a perfect recommendation. I've had an opportunity to interview a director by the name of Jason Cabell, who's got a new movie coming out in September called Running with the Devil, which stars Nicolas Cage, Barry Pepper, Lawrence Fishburne. I've had an opportunity to see the movie. And I really, really liked the film. And Nicolas Cage, he's not in it as much as I would like, but he's effective in the film. So I'm, I'm looking forward to letting listeners listen to that episode. Well, I just want to say really quick, because yep. I, I cut out there. I have to say, I'm so happy to hear love for Nicolas Cage. I'm a huge fan. And I, it was part of the reason for recommending leaving las vegas on top of the fact that it's just an amazing film but he's amazing in it and he has a lot of amazing films that he's done and great performances and when he's in the right role i mean he's um, i mean he's just great so i encourage folks to look into some of his other work you know things like the rock they're fun uh, con air's fun but he's he did some really serious movies that are are just tremendous Okay, so, uh, Mike, what's your second pick of the episode? Uh, so my second pick is a movie that, again, kind of like Angel Heart, although I think it's a lot more fun to watch than Angel Heart, is one that, uh, when it came out, was not as appreciated as it is now. And that's kind of true for this director's entire filmography, barring a couple of uh, notable exceptions. Uh, but when Carmelita mentioned she wanted to do kind of psychological stuff, uh, this one, this one's maybe not quite what one would consider a psychological thriller, but I think it is because it's about a, again, a man descending essentially into madness. And so my second pick is a, I think underappreciated classic from one of my all time favorite directors. It's 1994's in the mouth of madness from the almighty John Carpenter. For those who haven't seen it in the mouth of madness basically follows Sam Neill, who's an insurance investigator trying to track down this Stephen King like author named Sutter Kane, who has disappeared on the eve of a new book of his that is supposed to be released. The publishing company sends, uh, 
Sam Neill to go try and find Sutter Kane and weirdness happens. Uh, I won't say any more than that other than the weirdness is really, really weird. And uh, this is very much influenced by H.P. Lovecraft. Carpenter's an avowed fan of Lovecraft. Uh, For those who haven't read Lovecraft, you should forewarning the man was an unrepentant racist and so there is that problem with him but imaginatively he was uh, on next level uh, from a lot of other authors and so Carpenter really this really is Carpenter's love letter to Lovecraft and I just absolutely love this movie have you, either of you seen this one uh once once in the theater I, I just I, I obviously need to rewatch it again but I remember this film like super this was kind of out of Carpenter's traditional wheelhouse would you agree I think it felt like it at the time i think now with hindsight not necessarily because it's part of what's called his apocalypse trilogy it's the last part of that which consists of the thing prince of darkness and this and it takes a you you need a little bit of hindsight on carpenter's sort of oeuvre to to kind of see the patterns here at the time it came out like i said it was not well respected people didn't really feel like it was a carpenter movie now looking back on it it's it's a, it's a total Carpenter movie, but I kind of get why you would feel that way when you saw it when it came out. Carmelita, what do you think about the movie? I have never seen it. Oh, you've heard yeah. of it, though. You've heard of it. I have heard of it. Yes, absolutely. No, never seen it. That will be some of my homework after this. Well, what we like to do is, you know, we we always keep a list of the films we haven't seen and we always do a follow up episode. So what I'd like for you to do is definitely reach out to us and let us know what you thought about the film. So when Mike and I do our our, uh, every 10 episode recap, we can let the listeners know what you thought about it, because I'd be very curious to hear your thoughts. I need to rewatch it again. I mean, when it came out, I was, you know, obviously I was at a different spot in my life. So I really need to give it another try. Look, here's the thing with Carpenter. All right. I'm not sure there's ever been a director that has been more like Halloween notwithstanding. I'm not sure there's ever been a director that's been more underappreciated or under, you know, misunderstood when his movies come out. And then 20 years later, had such a critical and cultural reevaluation. I mean, there's so many Carpenter movies that when they came out, people didn't like them. And then 20 years later, look back and go, I mean, The Thing is the perfect example. For people who don't know, The Thing was a massive box office bomb. I mean, Carpenter had to make, uh, do a couple of studio movies to kind of get back in the good graces because The Thing was was such a bomb. And, uh, you know, many people now, myself included, consider The Thing to be, if not the best one of the best horror movies of the 1980s and so in the mouth of madness is kind of the same way when i first saw it i didn't love it either i i've rewatched it several times since i just rewatched it again this weekend and i think this thing holds up i think it is it is a lot of fun carpenter's doing some really interesting things and the biggest thing with carpenter is his eye the way he shoots things the way he structures movies is always so visually interesting that even if you're not in the story the movie is still kind of just a treat to watch so i do really recommend both of you check this one out awesome oh i certainly challenge will. accepted yes i was about to say took, took the words right out of my mouth challenge accepted carmelita what is your third pick of the episode so my third pick i really had to dig deep on this one because there was there was several that were kind of gnawing at me that i wanted to talk about and after re-watching a bunch of films i settled on another unconventional pick but I'm doing it anyway. It's 1950s Sunset Boulevard, directed by Billy Wilder, uh, co-written by Wilder, uh, Charles Brackett, and D.M. Marshman. It stars William Holden, 
the incomparable Gloria Swanson, Eric von Stroheim. There's some great cameos in this. Cecil B. DeMille, Hedda Hopper, Buster Keaton, H.B. Warner playing themselves. And this film, it's, it's in the style of film noir. It's got this eerie Hollywood gothic quality to it. It's a satire in some ways. It's a really cynical take on the Hollywood system. It famously pissed off some big wigs in Hollywood. Um, Louis B. Mayer, there's a, a famous story about him going off on, on Wilder in public about it. But it's the story of a down-on-his-luck screenwriter, Joe Gillis, played by William Holden. He ducks into an empty garage trying to evade the repo men that are coming for the car that he can't pay for. And he happens to roll his vehicle into the garage of Norma Desmond, played by Gloria Swanson. She's a middle-aged former silent film star, and she's living in this decrepit mansion in a complete retreat from reality. He agrees to work as her script editor, and that evolves into a really uncomfortable relationship of convenience. Most people wouldn't put this in the category of psychological films, but I do. In part because, although there's a lot of really interesting things about this film, there is this, there's this eerie sense, this foreboding you get throughout the film. Um, it's not a spoiler to say, the opening scene, you find a body lying face down in a swimming pool. So you know right out the gate that however the story plays out, someone winds up dead. And so throughout the film, as you're, you're getting to know these characters and you're trying to piece together where they're coming from and what they're about. And you're wondering who cracks, what brings about, what chain of events is going to bring about this dead body in a pool that you see in the beginning. And Gloria Swanson in her own life had been this epic mega star of silent film. Now, she did not, in later years, live a life like Norma Desmond. She was actually a very vibrant lady who continued to work and had a lot of interests and friends. And, and she's not Norma Desmond. So no one should confuse Gloria Swanson with the character she plays here. But she's perfect at it. And she's she comes in and out of these flights of fantasy. She's narcissistic. She screens her own films. She throws a party just for her and Joe. She They've taken all the locks out of the doors um, so that, you know, she won't hurt herself. But that adds this this element of Joe is never he's never safe. He can't escape. And he's pretty desperate at the beginning of the film. And you're kind of wondering throughout, how does he get out of this? And what is he getting out of their relationship beyond um, the financial gain? So it's a really interesting film. It's beautifully done. They had the option of color at that point, but. Billy Wilder wanted it in black and white and it works really well. Gloria Swanson curls her fingers as she gestures and she opens her eyes wide just like a silent movie star. It's a really interesting film to watch and for cinephiles, for people who love classic film, you get a kick out of all the name dropping and all the cameos. For folks who aren't as knowledgeable in classic film, this movie just might get you interested in checking it out. Well, I'm going to have to defer to Mike on this one because as although I'm certainly aware of it, I have not sat down to watch this film yet. So Oh wow. I know, I know. It's and and I mentioned last in uh in volume 16 that, you know, where my knowledge of films really 
stops is the 1970s. And, and I'm really making it a mission in 2019 to really start catching up on a lot of stuff from the 60s and the 1950s. And, and this one just moves up to the top of my list. Like this is one, this will be my Sunday night movie because it, it's something, it's long overdue for me. So Mike, what about you? Oh my God, I love this movie so much, Carmelita. This is such a great recommendation. Uh, So I've made it, you know, a couple episodes ago, I recommended The Apartment. I was very upfront about how much I love Billy Wilder. I think Billy Wilder's incredible. This is an incredible Billy Wilder movie. I I love this movie so much. I've even seen the unbelievably mediocre Broadway musical adaptation of it. Um, This is uh, such a, a classic of kind of film noir and just that, that, type of i don't want to say hard-boiled like hard-boiled detective but that type of just edgy mean kind of nasty movie we were we were getting in the 50s uh, is from people like billy wilder who could just kind of push the envelope of what the uh the Hayes code would allow we've talked about the Hayes code before this is one of those movies that has so ingrained itself into kind of pop culture that I think even if people hadn't haven't seen it, they're probably more familiar with it than they think they are. You know, Carmelita, you mentioned the opening and that's sort of doing the the telling of the story in flashback. You know, there's again, I don't want to get into spoilers, but lines in this like, you know, it's not me. It's the pictures that got small and I'm ready for my close up, Mr. DeMille. Like these are famous sayings that people use in pop culture and they came from this movie um william holden is fantastic in this movie you know gloria swanson gets to kind of do and she's great but she gets to kind of do the showy role holden has to hold it all together and be kind of the straight man famous german director eric von stroheim is just kind of in the background of this movie killing it as well this is such a good recommendation carmelita i think this is by far and away the the best recommendation this week um i love this movie i love that you recommended it it's so good if people haven't seen it, please, please see this one. I will. I promise. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. So, Mike, what do you got for your third pick and third and final pick of the episode? So my third pick is one that I think I had seen at some point in my life, but I'll be honest with you, I didn't remember it very well. And we talked a few weeks ago, a few episodes ago, Dana, when you mentioned Psycho. And I said, I have to admit that I'm not as familiar with Hitchcock as I should be. So I decided to uh, rewatch uh, Hitchcock's 1958 film Vertigo. Uh, and that is going to be my third recommendation, because I think when people think psychological thrillers, I'm not sure that there's necessarily a movie that encompasses that genre better than Vertigo does. Uh, For people who haven't seen Vertigo, it stars uh, Jimmy Stewart as a former San Francisco police detective named uh, John Scotty Ferguson. Scotty uh, uh, unfortunately allowed another police officer to die during a pursuit over the roofs of San Francisco. And uh, he didn't intentionally allow him to die, but as they were jumping from roof to roof, he developed Vertigo. He developed acrophobia. And he fell off slid off this roof and the officer tried to save him guy falls down and dies that's like the opening 30 seconds of the movie i'm not spoiling anything there point is scotty leaves the police department and kind of is just 
going through life when he's hired by an acquaintance to follow uh, this acquaintance's wife. And I won't get into any more than that other than this is Hitchcock's sort of portrait of obsession and portrait of sort of how a man with psychological issues can kind of stands on a precipice and can either go one way or the other. The movie's beautifully shot, uh, as a lot of Hitchcock movies are. Uh, there are some some interesting dream sequences and stuff that he does. It's got lovely, lovely Salabas credits. Um, it, it's just, it, it is a classic for a reason. It's one that I had never really spent enough time with. Um, it's considered one of the best movies of all time. I think the hype is warranted. Have either of you seen Vertigo? I, you mentioned that, did you, you mentioned that you had seen it once a long time ago? I think, yeah, I, and I remembered next to nothing. That's, that's where I'm at right now. I remember renting this from a video store, I want to say 92, 93, watching it on a, you know, a pan and scan tube television and not really having an opinion of the film and that's a shame because obviously I didn't watch the movie the way it was intended. Uh, this one's a strong rewatch. I have to give it a rewatch. I, I think it's a great recommendation but it's definitely one that I really can't dive too deep into. Carmelita, what about you? This is my favorite Hitchcock film. Perfect. So I am so happy that it got recommended today. I, I thought about doing it myself and I was like Oh, but everybody's seen Vertigo, right? And it's, but for anyone who hasn't, you need to see this movie. It is Hitchcock doing what Hitchcock does best. James Stewart is tremendous in this role. His, you know, the wide eyes and he's, he's just so desperate throughout the film and kind of increasingly so. And Kim Novak is like this sphinx. She's, you're trying to read her and she... It's a tremendous film. It's beautiful. I live in California, grew up in California, and film is set in San Francisco, but they also did some filming in um, San Juan Bautista, which is maybe 30 miles from where I grew up um, at the mission there. Um, so it's a beautiful film. It's a really interesting story. Uh, I highly recommend it. Well, and what I really like, you mentioned, you know, how good, Jimmy Stewart is in this. What I really like, so one of my favorite movies of all time is Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. I love Jimmy Stewart. He is certainly my favorite actor from the 30s and 40s and 50s. And what's really interesting is we kind of have a an impression of what Jimmy Stewart movies are, right? Like, even up to, you know, the end of his career when he was doing Campbell's soup ads and stuff like that. Like, so the fact that, that Hitchcock's able to take this what we know Jimmy Stewart to be. And there's an opening scene that he has with Barbara, Barbara Bel Geddes that is straight out of the Jimmy Stewart playbook. It's funny and he's goofy and he's interesting. And then the way Hitchcock kind of uses our expectations of Jimmy Stewart against us as we watch the movie to where by the end of the movie, he doesn't resemble Jimmy Stewart at all, I think is absolutely masterful. It was one of the, the joys of watching this movie is to watch an actor who sort of has a, a perception, a cultural perception, and watch him and a really great director tweak that, but also then use that to tell their story. Yeah, this one, I'm I'm kind of bummed it took me this long to get around to really digging into it and watching it. This is a movie I feel like I should have been watching regularly for the last 20 years because this thing is, is spectacular. One other thing I wanted to just shout out really quick, one of my all-time favorite bands from San Francisco is Faith No More. Their video for Last Cup of Sorrow, directed by Joseph Kahn, is a essentially a, a 
three-minute remake of this. If you haven't seen that video, check out the video. Watch this movie and then check out that video because it's a brilliant video. And the song's amazing because it's Faith No More and everything they do is amazing. So that's all I've got on Bernie. <laughs> that's awesome. I will say another musical tidbit, Harvey Danger, band from Seattle, did a song Carlotta Valdez and it's about vertigo and it's amazing. Ah, that's awesome. Nice. That's awesome. I'm going to check that out. Awesome. All right. So what we like to do at the end of each episode is we like to let the listeners know where they can find the movies that we've been talking about. So Mike, I'll turn it over to you first. Sure thing. So Angel Heart is currently streaming on Amazon Prime. If you've got a Prime subscription, it's free to watch there. Otherwise, it's available everywhere you rent and purchase movies. In the Mouth of Madness is streaming on Vudu uh, for free with ads. Um, I do also want to shout out that that Shout Factory just put out a beautiful Blu-ray of In the Mouth of Madness with a bunch of special features. So check it out on Vudu. But if you like it, really get that, that Blu-ray of it. And then uh, Vertigo is not streaming for free anywhere, but it is available for rent and purchase on all major streaming services. Carmelito, do you want to talk about uh, where the listeners can find your three recommendations? Oh, absolutely. So Jacob's Ladder is on Prime Video, streaming there. You can also rent and buy on all the other major platforms, Mm -hmm. YouTube, Amazon, iTunes, Vudu. It's in all of those. Leaving Las Vegas, also streaming on Prime. So that Prime subscription is going to come in handy after watch, listening to this episode. Uh, also on Roku, Vudu, um, and you can rent it on all those same platforms as well. And the sublime Sunset Boulevard, also streaming on Prime Video, Amazon. And you can rent and buy as well on all the, the usual platforms, YouTube, Google Play, iTunes, and PlayStation. Outstanding. So Carmelita, if people want to follow you on social media, Twitter, for example, how can they find you? You can find me on Twitter at Carmelita Says, and I love chatting back and forth about movies, so please feel free. Absolutely. Mike, if people want to follow you on social media? I am at Hibachi Justice on Twitter. I'm also at Hibachi Justice on Letterboxd, where you will also find our continually updating list of movies we recommend on the 20th Century Movie Club. I'm a couple episodes behind uh, as far as updating it goes. I did just epi- update episode 16. Uh, so that is those are all up there, but I haven't done 17 yet. Uh, and I will get to 18 as soon as this episode drops. So follow me on that. Outstanding. And if you want to follow this show on Twitter, it's at Dana Buckler Show. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, it's at Dana Buckler. There is an Instagram page set up at the Dana Buckler Show. And if you want to email the show with questions or comments, you can do so at the Dana Buckler Show at gmail.com. Carmelita, thank you so much for being on here. And thank you for being such a, an awesome supporter of this show. It, it really means the world. And I just wanted to tell you that. Like, thank you so much. Oh, no. Thank you for for putting out the Dana Buckler show and, and doing these these great podcasts. I love them. Awesome. Well, we're definitely going to have you back on. This was this was a lot of fun. And uh, I'm, I'd be curious to see what type of theme you come up with next time, because this was an excellent one, because this one for me was a there was a lot of films on here that I had either only seen once or hadn't seen at all. And I'm like, the purpose of the 20th Century Movie Club is to introduce films to people that they maybe haven't seen. And, and this was a really important episode. So thank you so much. And Mike... Thank you as always, my friend, and we're certainly going to be talking soon. We're we're a couple episodes away from the uh, our every ten episode recap. We are, and I think we both are going to have uh, quite a few movies to talk about on that one this go round. So I'm looking forward to that. Absolutely, and and listeners, we're, for episode 19, we're going to be welcoming back to the show Dylan Bruff, and I'm looking forward to having him back on. So nice. 
for uh, for everyone listening, I want to once again thank Mike and Carmelita for being on the show. And my name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening.